Good morning, everyone. Glad that we can be together. And my name is Paul Buckley. If you're new here, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I pray God's blessing on you. And we are in 2 Corinthians, making our way through this wonderful book, learning and encountering uh, our glorious God and His truth. And so we continue. We're in chapter 6 this morning. As you turn there, let me say that uh, the longer I live, the more I am convinced of um, the importance of Hebrews 12.15. You may or may not know this verse, but it says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Let me say it again. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. What the verse is basically saying is, see to it that you don't forget to grasp and be affected by the wonder, the power of God's grace. Because if you do, what will happen likely is that bitterness will spring up cause trouble and defile many. In other words, you have two alternatives, grace and bitterness. And as I get older, I see more reasons in my life and in other people's lives for bitterness. I think often the reason that young people are often full of energy and enthusiastic is simply because they have not faced many of the obstacles and disappointments of life. And as you grow older, you bump into things. You can't help but bump into things like disappointments, failure, others' anger or hatred or unkindness, all sorts of things we bump into in life, our dreams being crushed perhaps by reality. And so the temptation to be bitter grows and grows as you go along. And when bitterness rules, instead of the grace of God, our, our lives fall apart. I, I think of the example of Louis Zamperini. Uh, he is the subject of the movie Unbroken and the book. Tim Keller, uh, in recounting his life, says this, uh, just, just describing him, on a mission over the Pacific in 1943, Zamperini's plane crashed into the ocean, killing most on board. After 47 days afloat in shark-infested waters, Louis and one other survivor were captured and endured two and a half years of imprisonment, which consisted of almost constant beatings, humiliation, and torture. Returning after the war, he suffered from severe post-traumatic stress disorder and became an alcoholic. His wife, Cynthia, lost hope for their marriage. Louis spent most of his time dreaming and planning about returning to Japan to murder the man called the Bird. He was a Japanese sergeant who had repeatedly assaulted and tormented him in the camps. One night, he dreamt that the bird was looming over him. He reached out to defend himself. A scream woke him up, and there he was, straddling Cynthia's chest with his hands locked around the throat of his pregnant wife. Not long afterwards, Cynthia announced to him that she was filing for divorce. He was distressed, but even the threat of losing his wife and child could not stop his drinking and self-destructive behavior. He was too tormented by his past and bitterness to change, even to save his family. And then one day, fall of 1949, Cynthia was told, about, told by an acquaintance about Billy Graham coming to town. 
this young, uh, relatively unknown evangelist, and she attended uh, the meetings and came home a different woman. She went to Louis and told him she didn't want a divorce, that she experienced a spiritual awakening, that she wanted to accompany him, him to accompany her to hear his preaching. And he resisted, but he finally gave in. And that night, the young preacher's sermon homed in on the concept of human sin. And Louis was indignant. He thought, I'm a good man. But almost as soon as he had thought that, he felt the lie in it. And several nights later, he returned and he repented and received Christ as Savior. Zamperini was immediately delivered of his alcoholism, but more crucially, he felt God's love flood his life and realized that he was able to forgive all of those who had imprisoned and tortured him. The shame and sense of powerlessness that had, had stoked his hate and misery had vanished. His relationship with Cynthia was renewed and deepened. They were blissful together. And in October 1950, he was able to return to Japan and speak through an interpreter at the prison where many of his former camp guards were now imprisoned. He spoke about the power of Christ's grace to bring forgiveness. And to the prisoner's shock, he embraced each of them with a loving smile. A wonderful story, and it illustrates, I think, a key theme in our text today. What we're going to see is an example from Scripture of a life free from bitterness and grounded in the grace of God. We're going to see how that life functions and the result of it. And we're going to see, I think, in this, a picture of someone's heart that remains soft and wide open by the grace of God. So let's pray, and we'll dig into God's Word. Lord, thank you for your Word. And Lord, we know this story of Louis Zamperini and many others are true because there is a greater truth of who you are and your grace and the difference it makes. And I thank you for this passage today. And I ask you, Lord, that for us, no matter what age we might be, we would hear you speaking to us privately and personally about our own hearts, the, own con the condition of our own hearts before you. And I pray by your power, Holy Spirit, as your word is proclaimed, that you would come and minister to us in our hearts. And as a result, Lord God, you would release us from bitterness and hard-heartedness and give us soft hearts, no matter what age we might be, that you might be glorified, that we might be satisfied, that others might be blessed through us. All through your word, we thank you, Father. We look to your work and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. 
We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. God's Word from 2 Corinthians 6, 1-13. In this passage, we see the heart of Paul and his team. We see people in Paul and his team who are affected by God's grace and who are able through all sorts of circumstances, all sorts of difficulties, all sorts of ups and downs of life and ministry and the unique apostolic call that Paul had, retain hearts that are trusting in God and still wide open. And we see Paul appealing to the Corinthians to really be the same. You see, the truth in this, the, the theme that runs through this, is that the grace of God produces Christians who remain soft-hearted even amidst great difficulties and disappointments. And I want us to hear that message, and I want to hear Paul's, I want you to hear Paul's call, and through that, the Lord's call to you to open wide your hearts, to so live by grace that you remain soft-hearted and Christ-like and effective in life. So let's walk through this passage and look at the key truths first that grace-filled Christians endure in God's grace. So Paul says in the beginning, verses 1 through 2, uh, as fellow workers working together with him, carrying out the ministry of reconciliation, compelled by the love of Christ, proclaiming this wonderful news of grace, they appealed to the Corinthians to respond fully to God's grace. Paul appeals to them not to receive the grace of God in vain. And so he's been talking about the grace of God. We've been going through this book and learning about the grace of God. And, and, and just really one verse before is really the core of the truth, uh, the core truth of the grace of God from which everything else flows. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The wonderful truth here, it's a picture of grace. Grace simply means an undeserved gift, an unmerited, an unearned gift. It's not given because you earned it or because someone likes you. It's just a blessing that you get. That's pure blessing. That's the idea of grace. And this verse describes that because here we have Jesus. He is the one who knew no sin, who became sin. And he is taking on himself our burden, our burden of sin, our burden of, of shame, our burden of guilt, our burden that comes with our sin. And sin is simply our, our refusal to love as we ought to. Our refusal to love God, that's the most grievous sin because he's only been good and always is good in every way. He never does anything that's not part of his goodness. doesn't mean there aren't difficulties in life and so forth, but ultimately he is always good. And so when we refuse to love Him and follow Him and trust Him, it's a grievous fault. It's sin. And then, of course, uh, we sin against one another. And yet Jesus, in His great love, God becoming flesh in Christ, comes and He bears that burden on Himself on the cross. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So Him, the one who's making Jesus to, to bear that burden, in full cooperation in the Trinity, is the Father. Because from eternity past, the Father has loved us and determined that he would rescue us out of his great love for us. And so in counsel together somehow in ways we don't understand, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the one God, 
made a plan. And that is that the Son, the eternal Son, would take on flesh and bear the sins of God's beloved people. So for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in Jesus, through faith in Jesus, we would become the righteousness of God. We would be fully accepted, fully forgiven, fully counted righteous, and fully welcomed into every blessing that comes with that. So Jesus takes on our burden, and He gives us His blessing. That's grace. And that is yours through simple faith. Simple faith. It's so important to understand the core of the Christian life it's not about what you need to do, a list of things, but it's simple faith, turning away from sin, turning away from self-reliance, self-righteousness, and saying, I want you, Jesus. That's simply what it is, and receiving Him through faith. The call of this wonderful news of grace is not just to think, well, that's really cool, and then make our way in life, but to receive it personally, to realize that this is a call to, to me, to you personally. And God calls us to respond to Him and say, yes, Lord. I receive this gift. I thank you. I want to follow you. That is grace. And it's all a gift. And we can live in forgiveness and the favor of God and all the fullness of it. All the inheritance that Jesus earned by His worthy life is now ours as, as we are joined to Him through faith. And the Father is for us and He's favorably disposed to us in every way. And He loves us. And so Paul tells the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain. So he's just talked about the core of this grace, and now he says, guys, don't receive it in vain. Don't hear the message and not let it sink in. Don't hear the message and just think, well, it's, it's, you know, I prayed that prayer 10 years ago, I'm all set. No, every single day, live in that grace. Rely on that grace. And, and, and do it in such a way that, that it saturates your life and your thinking and your being and all that you do. And as you encounter the things of life, the difficulties of life, let it wash you clean of bitterness. That's what he's saying. That It's not just one day, but it's a lifetime of living in grace. And he goes on to quote, for he says, In a favorable time I've listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. He's quoting from Isaiah 49, and, and you can look at that later, but Isaiah 49, uh, there's a whole section there that talks about the wonder of God coming to an undeserving people and lavishing on them forgiveness and restoration. And the promise in Isaiah 49, it talks about the servant being Jesus himself, who would come and make this all possible. And that the fullness of salvation would come through the servant. And as we receive it, we would receive forgiveness and then full restoration in time. Because the plan, guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ, is that he is reigning now, returning, and he will complete the work. There will be fullness of salvation. And so Paul is referencing this one verse to point to the whole chapter, the whole section, so that the Corinthians would understand just how lavish this grace is. And that it's to be received now. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the day that we rely on grace and receive this grace and live in this grace. We need to get grace. We need to get this free gift offered to us. It is so key for our lives. We must be careful. We must be careful that we don't receive the grace of God in vain only to be shipwrecked by bitterness or confusion or temptations of various sorts. Your life, the vitality of your Christian life, the authenticity of your Christian life, the effectiveness of your Christian life depends on getting grace and living in grace and being transformed by it. 
Grace is the power for the Christian life. Grace is the power for holiness. Grace is the power for your faith. Grace is the power for a soft heart. As we live and we bask in this wonderful grace, this free gift of forgiveness, and come to Him again and again, I'm sorry, Lord, I messed up today, but thank You that Christ's holy blood has paid for my sins, and I can come to You as a forgiven and beloved son or daughter. Give me now grace to, to, to love You and to rest and rely on You to love others. Living that way day to day is so vital. And it isn't just the first day, it's for every day because we can receive it in vain. We could stop living in that grace and let other things take over. This seems especially relevant in light of recent news um, about a man maybe some of you know named Josh Harris. He's a well-known pastor and author. He's a friend of mine. And he renounced Christianity and also announced that he's divorcing his wife. And the news has hit really hard for many of us that know Josh and were influenced by his books. Now, I don't know all that happened with Josh, but I read his statements, his recent comments, and it's interesting just to note some things. Again, I don't know too much. And my heart for Josh is that he would return to Jesus. And if he really does belong to Jesus, he will return. But as he talks about his Christian background, he uses words like conservative, legalistic, and he talks about his new freedom. And I was so sad to hear him describe his Christian background that way. Now, I don't know what his experience was. I can't speak for him. But it was so sad to hear him describe it these ways because I think those are ways that are very contrary to the Christian life portrayed in Scripture and experienced by many. And I do wonder whether he's received the grace of God in vain. Certainly where he is now, it seems to be what's happening. The grace of God does not produce legalism, it produces freedom. And so to describe Christianity as legalism is contrary. So, I don't know, maybe he experienced it because Christians weren't living by the grace of God. The grace of God doesn't produce conservatism, but progress in the things of Christ and His kingdom. The grace of God doesn't constrain you, but frees you to live forgiven beloved and to give your heart away Paul's talked about this here in our in our letter this second Corinthians just said in chapter 3 now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of Lord is there is freedom and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit that passage is such a different picture than what I'm hearing from my friends there's freedom. There's new life. There's progress and growth. There's hope. I pray that he comes back to these truths. And I pray that we here in this experience, and more importantly in this passage, that we need to be careful not to receive the grace of God in vain, but to live in it. To depend on it. To recognize that we're desperate for it, and if we don't immerse ourselves and remember it and encourage each other in it, we will grow bitter and we will wander away. So do you understand this in the Christian life? Do you understand this truth? The centrality of the, the grace of God. Now, and it's not grace is not just some idea that's an abstract. 
It's the expression of the character of God himself. So to know grace is to know God. To know God is to know grace. Do you understand that? Or, or is Christianity for you about the rules and compliance and the outward appearances? What you need to do and what you ought not to do? Or is it grace changing your life, animating your life, propelling you to love and to grow in faith? Do not miss the grace of God. Otherwise, a bitter root will grow up and consume you. That's the truth here. Secondly, uh, grace-filled Christians shine in hardship. So as we continue in this section, verses 3-10, through 10, Paul talks about his own life and ministry. Now he's talking here because I think there's a couple of things. He wants to be an example for the Corinthians. He also wants to call them to recognize the legitimacy of his, of his call and leadership. Because there is a fracture in their relationship, and Paul's seeking to address that for their good. So there's that element here, but as we listen to Paul and as he talks about the things that commend his ministry, we, we learn from him the example of a grace-filled life. I don't have time to go into all the different things listed, but there are 37 different traits here listed. There are 37 different ways that Paul is saying that, that his life is marked and as you make your way through that, I think you can't help but think, wow, the fact that Paul, at the end of the section, in verse 11 through 13, is going to talk about being open-hearted, how could he ever genuinely have that quality if he went through all this stuff? Because if you go through it, the first ten things are all these terrible adversities. Endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. For him and his ministry, his apostolic ministry, it means, as for reasons of just the things that happened you know, back in those days as you journeyed from place to place, things you'd face, uh, the hardships that you would face, or the things that come at the hands of abusers, it's been incredibly difficult for Paul. And the team, and yet they have endured through these things. They've dealt with this list of all sorts of terrible things. And, and I would imagine that we have faced very few of the list of ten. And yet for him, they've endured through it. The list goes on. The next nine things um, are virtues that they demonstrate. Uh, things in their lives where God is working in in their lives, and so he lists them out. They're good things that commend Paul and his team. So it isn't just the fact that he's faced all these things, these ten adversities, afflictions, and hardships, and beatings, and imprisonments, and all these things, but, but in all these things, he's demonstrated along with his team these virtues as the grace of God has sustained them, and fueled them, and enabled them, and empowered them, that demonstrated something profoundly different than how others would respond to these circumstances. Instead, instead of being bitter, and angry and disappointed and giving up, they have, through these things, displayed purity and knowledge and patience and kindness. They've relied on the Holy Spirit. They've operated in genuine love, truthful speech, relied on the power of God. They, they have practiced the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, so offense and defense, the Word of God and faith. All these things have been demonstrated in their lives. And then he goes on in verses 8-10 through 10 to list 18 qualities that are actually paired in contrast, so they're paradoxes. They're, they seem to be opposite each other, but they're, but they're used to just to, to demonstrate just how, to demonstrate vividly just how 
amazing in some ways, the grace of God is in and through their lives. And so, they've experienced honor and dishonor, slander and praise. They're treated as imposters, and yet they're always true, as unknown, and yet they're well-known by God Himself and His people, as dying, and yet we live in Christ, as punished, yet not killed, living forever in Christ, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, sorrowful over over the sins of the world and the brokenness of our world, yet always rejoicing because there's forgiveness and victory and new life in Christ. As poor, materially, yet making many rich, truly rich, spiritually, eternally. As having nothing, yet possessing everything because they are owned by God and God owns everything. This is quite a list that Paul gives here. And it's a picture, certainly, that commends their ministry, but it's also a picture of the Christian life. Now, we need to recognize that we are not Paul, and we probably don't even equate to anyone on his team and what they were called to do and what they faced. And we need to recognize that God in his sovereign wisdom and goodness knows how for each of our lives individually, according to who we are and our call, to, to weave things together in such a way that, that are just right for us. So probably none of us will ever face 10% of what Paul's talking about here. And maybe we won't operate in the level of gifting where I don't think we will that he operated in yet there's lessons here for us first I think we need to realize that the Christian life involves a great deal of hardship it involves suffering it involves being poor at times it involves being mistreated it involves being unpopular discouraged saddened by the brokenness of the world troubled by anxiety the Christian life involves a lot of hardship don't let anyone tell you otherwise the sort of teaching that's out there that if you just have enough faith, you'll experience freedom from hardship and a life of health and wealth is contrary to what we see here. Paul is not selling this sort of Christianity in this passage. There's hardship. But we need to recognize, too, that there's a lot of good in the Christian life. The grace of God is working and giving the ability to endure and remain soft-hearted through all these hardships and producing virtues in our lives, and giving us power for ministry, and using us to do things that are just amazing, far beyond our ability. You may be poor, materially, but you have the greatest riches in you if you belong to Jesus you could ever imagine. And you have the ability as you love others and represent Christ to them and share the good news with them to make them rich beyond imagination spiritual and eternal. And yes, there will be a material element to that when the Lord returns and restores all things. But you have the greatest uh, riches, greatest treasure in you, in Christ. And you get to make others rich. You get to affect people for eternity. There's that virtue among many other things. You have the Lord with you always. You have the power of God with you. You have the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through you. You have this ministry of reconciliation to carry forth. You are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. You will look gloriously like Jesus one day. And, and your friends, those around you, will say, Wow, look at what the Lord has done. You look great. <laughs> that's what we have in Jesus. And so that's mixed together with the hardship. That's what Paul's presenting here. There is this blend that God creates for each of us, and it's all different. And we don't get to say what it's going to look like. Peter was told that it was going to involve some suffering. And he said, well, what about that guy? 
John. And Jesus said, what's that to you, Peter? You follow me. You follow me and let John follow me. And I'm going to take care of both of you. And so in our lives, we don't get to necessarily choose how it's going to look, but the Lord knows, and He's good. And it's a good thing. It's for our good and for His glory and for the good of others. This past week, I got to visit with our sister Soila. She gave me permission to share these things. Uh, as some of you know, she fractured her hip. Uh, and in response, they scanned and found in her, in her hip a new tumor. They think it's metastasized breast cancer. And if you know Soila, this is the fourth round of cancer she's dealing with in treatment. It's been 15 years of dealing with cancer for her. And yet as I visited her and talked about these things, she told me that she acknowledged these truths. We were talking about these very truths from this passage and others. But she also told me that God had done something. There was no pain related to her fracture. She's off of pain medicine, and this is just... It happened about a week ago, a week, week and a half ago or so. She's off the pain medicine. She has no pain in her hip in her, related to the fracture. It's amazing because it's usually a month to six months to recover from a hip fracture. So just to give you a sense of, of just how amazing it is. She has some soreness when she walks. But I mean, I, I was there actually when the doctor came in and was asking and kept on asking the same question because I don't think he quite believed her when she said, I'm not experiencing pain. And he was like, really? And you can walk? She's like, yeah, I can walk. I'm like, well, how far can you walk? And, and basically, she's fine walking. And, and, um, and so she was sharing that, and, and she was very encouraged by that. Because I believe, that, I think it was the Lord. We trust it was Him taking away the pain and maybe healing the fracture. And it was just a reminder that God's in, in all this and with her. And she and I talked about this reality of God creating this mix of hardship and blessing in such a way to work in us an eternal way to glory. That we would understand there's an eternal way to glory being worked in us and through us, and she is going to shine. Our sister Soila is going to shine as a result. She is already shining. But she's going to shine as a result. And she's going to understand that these momentary trials were just fleeting. And there's an eternal way to glory. Well, I shared with her a quote that I shared here times before Martin Luther said when we get to heaven and we see the weight of glory that the Lord is preparing for us and how he uses all these things, we're going to say, oh, I wish I had suffered more. And our sister is demonstrating that attitude in many ways. She's shining for the Lord and she's demonstrating this reality. The grace of God gives us this ability to still remain soft-hearted through hardships. Do you understand this for the Christian life? Do you know how important this is? Do you know that this is the reality that God mixes hardships and blessings together? And the hardships might be very difficult at times. This is part of how He does this. Do you understand it for your life? Are you shocked by hardship or not? Let me ask you something I think maybe hits home more for parents. Do you understand this for your children? And are you willing to let the Lord take care of them in their own hardships? That's one of the hardest things for me. Trusting God to take care of my kids and keep them in hardship. But this is the recipe. This is our God. And He calls us to, and calls our children to live in this sustaining grace that will enable us to, to walk with Him and exemplify these virtues even through difficulty. Finally, 
Grace-filled Christians are open-hearted. And this is how Paul finishes. He says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Open. Our heart is wide open. Actually, literally what he says is, our mouth is wide open, our heart is wide open. Now, it's translated differently in the ESV because in America, if you say your mouth is wide open, that's not a good thing generally. Um, it means you're a loud mouth or something, but that's not how it's used here by Paul. It basically means we've been totally honest with you guys. We've shared just everything. We're not hiding anything. This is who we are. This is how we think things. We're not hiding. We have a totally transparent relationship with you guys. And not just our words and our thoughts, but our hearts as well. Our hearts are wide open. There's no bitterness towards you guys. We're not frustrated. We love you. We're trusted in the Lord. We're letting His grace animate us and, and, and help us and empower us to forgive and empower us to love you guys and empower us to have such love for you that it covers over a multitude of sins. Corinthians, our hearts are wide open. That's what Paul's saying to them. This is where he is uh, in his heart and his whole team. It's really amazing given what he's gone through that he isn't bitter and cynical and vindictive. I mean, the way he's treated by the Corinthians, the way that he's had to deal with things. It's, it's amazing that Paul hasn't said and he probably has actually, but he doesn't live by, God, why are you doing this? What did I do wrong? Why are you doing this to me? Why is it that Paul is enabled not to live there and stay there? Because he understands the lavish grace of God. God has given himself fully and suffered in his place beyond anything Paul would ever suffer so that he could win Paul to himself, so that Paul could live in, in relationship with God, free from sin and guilt and shame, and free to receive and live in love and depend on God as God has always designed it to be in relationship with humanity. And so Paul, living in that grace, doesn't let those things affect him and create a bitter heart, but instead a soft heart that can say to the Corinthians, who should be his enemies. We've been totally open with you guys and our hearts are open. And then he goes on to say, you are not restricted by us. The reason there's difficulty here in our relationship is not because of us. We want to walk, walk through and work through everything. We love you guys. You're restricted in your own affections. Your hearts somehow have been led astray and become bitter and been distracted by the world. So he says, in return, I speak as to children. I speak to you as my spiritual children. I speak as a father would to his own child who was estranged. Widen your hearts. Awesome. Let your hearts be softened. Let them be softened towards us. Let them be softened in every way. We're going to go on to see later next week that this sort of heart attitude not only allows us to relate to people this way, but allows us to walk in holiness and faith and obedience in a profound way in our lives. It's the grace of God. We need the grace of God to give us the ability to be soft-hearted. Years ago, I met a man who had come to Jesus late in life. He was in his 60s, I believe, at the time. He had been a Boston police officer. And he had retired. And in the course of his work as a Boston cop, you can imagine, he faced all sorts of terrible things. He retired from the police force full of hurt and bitterness and darkness of soul and hardness of heart. And by the way, all of our public servants face things that tempt towards bitterness, more so than many of us would face. His heart was embittered 
and darkened and hardened. But when he heard the good news of God's grace from a friend, something began to happen. He heard this good news of God's grace and love and forgiveness in Christ. Something started to happen and, and this friend prayed for him and called on God the Holy Spirit to come in power to work in his heart. And as he did that, as he prayed, he was telling him the story. Something inside of him just erupted and out came all the hurt, all the bitterness, all the evil, all the junk of decades of serving as a Boston police officer. All came out and was replaced and a process through confession and forgiveness. And he was filled with the love of God and this old crusty Boston cop wept and wept and wept as God took a hardened heart and caused it to be renewed and softened in the grace of God. My friends, my brothers and sisters, I cannot overstate the importance of these truths. Life will be hard. You will face disappointments. You will hurt, be hurt. You will fail. You'll be tempted and you'll struggle. You'll feel weak. Your dreams, some of your best and noblest dreams, will be dashed. You will be betrayed, either on purpose or by accident. You will get sick. You might have chronic sickness. All these types of things, and perhaps more, will happen. If you're not immersed and anchored and thriving in the grace of God, you won't make it through. Bitterness will replace a soft heart. So I want to conclude just by praying. Praying uh, perhaps like that pastor did for the Boston police officer. Just for power. The power for our own hearts. So would you pray with me?